Well, we're continuing a new sermon series where we're talking about learning how to, to maximize God's faithfulness to us. Now, I know we're in church, so some of you are going to do this just because we're in church. But if I ask you the question, has God been faithful to you, would you raise your hand? How many of you would raise your hand? Yes, absolutely. (coughs) Have you been faithful to God? No. You see, we have God's endless stores of grace and provision that he gives to us. And aren't we in want all the time? Last week, we began this sermon series by talking about the, the, the nature of discontentment and contentment. And how when you have a contented heart, things are just different in your life. They're different in your relationships. Uh, they're different in your work. They're different in your finances when you are content. As a matter of fact, Pastor Reed is not here this morning because he's standing in line somewhere for the new iPhone. He's not even here. He's not even here to defend himself. So I had all kinds of Georgia jokes and everything ready this morning, and he's on vacation. <clears throat> but the truth is, contentedness really does change everything. It makes you less needy. And the truth is, when you're content, you recognize God's faithfulness in a different way. If you're not content, God doesn't look quite as faithful, does he? Because I want, want, want. And you stop counting your blessings and start counting your wish list. That's a problem. This morning we come to a a, a difficult topic to preach on. Talking about saving for the future. Fortunately, we go to a great Bible passage to learn that. And the context for this is uh, Proverbs 21.20. Kind of a theme verse over these next several weeks. In which the Bible says this. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling. A wise man always has things that he needs, precious treasures and oil. But a foolish man devours everything he has. A wise man plans for the future, but a foolish man lives for what? Lives for today. So a very serious question at the very beginning of our sermon. According to this passage... According to this definition, how many of us are fools? I know you didn't come to church to be insulted. That's not my intention. But if you listen to the statistics, the way any rational person would have to answer this is that most of us are fools. Uh, Gallup has recently done a survey that says that over 70% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. I mean, they, they have no margin. They're living paycheck to paycheck, and they would be completely unable to handle a $5,000 emergency. Now listen, $5,000 emergency is nothing to be blinked at. That's pretty serious. But most people would not have the capacity to care for their family without going to a home equity line of credit or to a credit card. And the truth of the matter is a $5,000 emergency is not all that hard to get to. Insert leaky roof here. A busted up car. A minor medical bill. $5,000 happens quick. And essentially, if the vast majority of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, they are basically living in such a way that they are hoping 
Life just doesn't happen to them. They're winging it on a prayer. Does this sound like a solid plan for the future? Does this sound like you've got the peace of God just overflowing in your life? No, there's always something to worry about. And so the Bible says that a wise man stores up. And we all know what foolishness looks like. As a matter of fact, most of us in this room have probably contributed to it. Some of us have probably put a few zeros behind it as well. Uh, Foolishness is not fun to talk about. And so instead of focusing on the negative, we want to focus on the positive. How do you... How do you take what God has given to you and maximize it so that you are able to not just care for yourself, but to have enough left over to do what? Care for others. Care for others. And so this morning we go to a great passage of the Bible, a great example of wise living in Genesis chapter 41. Uh, Many of you will recognize immediately what this story is. It is the story of Joseph. And it's a great story. It's an amazing story. Joseph starts off as a young man with crazy dreams about what God is going to do in his life. And you just love his youthful enthusiasm. Uh, Needs to be tempered with a little bit of tactfulness because he's just glad to tell everybody, man, God's got big plans for me. And it creates a little bit of strife in his family. As a matter of fact, his Brothers plot his murder and then have second thoughts and say, no, we can't have his blood on his hands. Let's just sell him into slavery. Well, hey, that's a good plan B. Terrible that his brothers do this. Joseph goes, he's sold into slavery, and very quickly he rises to prominence by being a servant in an aristocrat's house, a man by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar loves this young man that he has bought, that is serving in his house, and everything that Joseph touches. It's like he's got Midas's touch. It turns to gold. But eventually, Potiphar's wife, who is a lecherous woman, makes an advance on Joseph, to which Joseph refuses and is rewarded by going to jail. Going to jail. And that's where we pick this story up. But we'll see that Joseph being in jail is just a pretext to the rest of the story. Because today we'll see a couple of things about being wise with what God has given us. And the first thing that we see is that preparing for the future is absolutely necessary. Look with me at verses 14 through 17 of Genesis chapter 41. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. Joseph starts off the story in prison and is forgotten, perhaps even languishing there a little bit. And then Pharaoh has a bad night's sleep. He has a series of dreams, and he goes to his wise men, the people in his court, to ask them for their advice on what What is happening in my subconscious? What am I being told to do? These dreams have troubled me, and I need an answer. 
And all the people on his payroll are completely powerless to do anything to help him. The cupbearer to the king happens to remember when he had fallen out of the king's good graces and had been sent to prison himself. And there was a boy in the prison who had this gift for interpreting dreams. And it just so happened that both the cupbearer and the baker related dreams to Joseph that he interpreted completely correctly. And Joseph said, hey, when the dreams come true and you get restored, remember me. Well, it seems that for the last two years, the cupbearer has completely forgotten everything that Joseph had done for him until now. God in his sovereignty had said, you know, Joseph, it's not time for you to get out of that prison just yet. But when Pharaoh had a dream, the cupbearer goes, I know a guy that can, he, he can tell dreams. What, what's his name? Joseph. And now from the prison, Joseph has to bathe, he has to shave, because he knows in the condition that he's at, he's not presentable to the king. So jo- Joseph is rescued because no one else can do what he is about to do. And the story goes on in the next few verses that Pharaoh relates his dream to Joseph. And Pharaoh essentially has two dreams that tell the same story with different um, figures involved. The first dream is about cows, and the second dream is about ears of corn. And through this dream process, God is telling Joseph and God is telling Pharaoh that something will come to happen in the future that won't be good. Now, don't lose the wonder there. God can tell Pharaoh the future because he controls it, because he knows it. And we see God's grace in telling Pharaoh, trouble is coming. Do you, do you, would you want to know that? Driving to a doctor's appointment. Mysterious phone call on your cell phone, and it's God. Hey, I know you're on your way to the doctor's. Just wanted to let you know what's going to happen there. Do you enjoy that? But we still see that it's God's grace in telling them that trouble is coming. Now, we don't know the future, do we? We don't know the future. Or do we? I have a friend, a contemporary, peer, back in Kentucky that was very intent on sharing the gospel with his father and saw his father come to Christ, but knew that his grandfather desperately needed Christ as well. For multiple years, multiple occasions, uh, this young man had shared Christ with his grandfather who adamantly refused to hear the words of the gospel because he had a plan. And his plan was to wait to the last possible moment to listen receptively to the words of the gospel to make his peace with his maker and in his words, live the way that he wanted, make a deathbed confession and have the best of both worlds. Unfortunately, his plan did not take into account a brain aneurysm that allowed him no opportunity to make the plan for the future That he had accounted for. And while with great sadness we can think of that situation and in a sympathetic way say, How foolish to plan your spiritual life that way. In the same way, 
that's just a microcosm of what we do with our finances. We don't plan for the future. We don't use what God has given us wisely, and then we find ourselves in a situation where we cannot even provide for ourselves when God has provided so richly for us. If there is any truth that we know, it is this, that emergencies will happen. Emergencies will happen. And it's been said that everyone is either coming out of, going into, or knows someone right now who's in an emergency. There's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? In a room this size, we could pray for hours just for the people that we know that are struggling with something significant. Money Magazine says that 78%, almost 80% of us, will face a major negative financial crisis within any 10-year period. Now, um, look down your pew. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Perfect. Eight of you are going to have a $6,000 to $10,000 financial emergency within the next 10 years. Any volunteers? Do you want it to be you? Well, the statistics say you'd better prepare because it is going to happen. You know what it'll be for most people? It'll be a medical emergency. Medical debt is the leading cause of personal bankruptcy in the United States. And what's so devious about medical emergency is added to the danger of a threat to your health is now added the strain of finances. It's a double whammy. And the Bible says that the wise man is prepared. His house is filled with a store of goods that God has already provided that are saved to provide when the fire is hottest. Do we know the future? Not the details. But the truth is that the unexpected isn't really unexpected. If we pay attention to the statistics, we have the opportunity to not be surprised when bad things happen. And in our story, Egypt is one of the richest, most productive societies of all time. And God, in His grace, warns of impending trouble. And in that warning, you know what God does? He gives them time to prepare. Do you know what stinks about preparation? is that preparation, preparing for the future, requires a principled commitment. You see, the truth is emergencies are really only emergencies when they're not prepared for. If you've saved and your car breaks down on the side of the road, and you know that you can put it in the shop and get it fixed, and you don't have to worry about it, isn't it an emergency? Well, yes, it's an emergency. But it's not the kind of emergency when you're sitting on the side of the road wondering how in the world are things going to happen. And listen, this is not a sermon about a get-rich-quick scheme. It's a message about wise stewarding of what God has already provided for you. And the truth is that preparing for the future does require a very principled, a sacrificial commitment. 
Now, everyone knows that it's wise to plan for the future, and it, it, it's a good idea to have an emergency fund. And I bet we could all recite the Boy Scout motto this morning. What's the Boy Scout motto? Be prepared. We know it. Or whatever it is. Sorry, Tyler. And we see here that Joseph, he's asked to do what to Pharaoh? He's asked to interpret the dream. But when Joseph understands what the dream is, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't stop at what he's being paid to do. He says, all right, I've given you the interpretation, Pharaoh. Good luck with that. He, he feels compelled to offer Pharaoh a specific plan to be able to navigate this emergency. Look at verses 33 through 37. It says this. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, 33 through 37. Now, let Pharaoh look for a man who is discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his servants. See, Joseph figures out what the dream is about. And the dream is repeated twice to show that Verily, verily, this is coming your direction, Pharaoh, and you had better be prepared. And the dream amounts to seven years of superabundance in the land, followed by seven years of the most terrible scarcity one can imagine. And as as Joseph interprets the dream to Pharaoh, and as he faces the prospect of seven years of prosperity, followed by seven years of scarcity, Joseph's thought, save Save, save. He said a specific amount. He said one-fifth, 20% was to be saved. They were to take of the land's produce and they were to put aside part of their income to be an emergency fund, to prepare them for what was coming. And there was nothing left to chance. Did you hear what Joseph's advice was? He said, Pharaoh, uh, this is your call ultimately, boss man. Find a wise leader. Find someone who understands the times. Give him helpful administrators to help him bear the burden of doing this for the entire nation. And give them your authority. Let this be your plan, Pharaoh. And so he lays out to Pharaoh not just the interpretation of the dream, but a plan that if they will be committed to, by the grace of God, may help them to avert the disaster. Preparing for the future is not just a wise principle for people who lived in the ancient Near East in an agrarian society. But preparing for the future is wise for our own spiritual and financial lives too. You see, we we need to be wise with money. My dad, my grandpa always used to tell me money doesn't grow on trees. I don't think I ever understood what that meant until I started having kids. And kids... I will repeat to you, money does not grow on trees. That's part of being a parent. You've got to repeat the knowledge. We need to be wise with our money, but more importantly, we need to be wise with our life. 
And the good news is that the Bible says when the gospel comes into our life, you know what it brings? It brings wisdom. I know, listen, today, you may not think of yourself as eminently wise. You're not in the manger scene when the three wise guys come from the east. That's not you. But the Bible says that the gospel brings wisdom with it. And the truth is, the gospel may be the ultimate example of preparing for the future. Did you get that? The gospel may be the ultimate example of planning for the future. Look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. You'll see it here on the screen. A great passage that says some important truths about what the gospel provides to us. Listen to the word of God. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And then listen here, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. That's as timeless as when it was written, friends. We are to look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The Bible teaches us that this life is not all that there is and that what we do with Christ may determine, will determine where we spend eternity and should determine how we live in the meantime. The gospel helps us plan for the future. And we are wise to apply this principle to our personal and financial lives as well. And the truth is, Joseph knew this. You need to have a plan in order to be prepared. You need to have a plan in order to be prepared. You will not save for a future emergency by accident. It's not going to happen. It's not fun. Because what you want right now... I guarantee you looks better than preparing for some bland emergency that might happen in the future. That cruise? Man, that's great right now. I I need to get away. Maybe not if it throws your future into financial jeopardy. Put numbers down. Hold yourself accountable. And so many people, when they hear this idea of budgets and plans, thinks that this means don't have fun. Don't ever go out to eat. Don't ever buy anything that you're going to enjoy. Be a nerd who sits around with your budget all day long, looking at what you can spend and what you can't spend, and don't, don't have fun. That, that is not what it means. It means have a fun line item in your budget and make sure it's well stocked. But don't let that be the only line item in your budget. Plan for the future and plan to have fun. Don't let your fun imperil your future. Larry Burkett says this, a budget is simply telling your money what to do instead of wondering where it went. You ever been there? Where'd all the money go? Well, if you don't tell your money what to do, it won't be there when you need it. So what's the result of Joseph's dream telling? 
Well, we see that back in Genesis 41. Verses, uh, we'll begin in verse 38. <clears throat> then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this Joseph, in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put the gold necklace around his neck. And he had him to ride in his second chariot. And they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee! And Pharaoh set him over all the land of Egypt. You know, it's interesting. Saving money shouldn't be so um, amazingly wise. And Joseph's, Joseph's wisdom promoted him from the prison to the prime minister. Where did he come from? Where is he at? Look how the story continues in 47 through 49. During the seven years of plenty, the land indeed brought forth abundantly. So Joseph gathered all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Joseph is immediately promoted to second in command. You see, Pharaoh, while an unbeliever, was wise because he knew something about saving for the future. He knew that timing matters. And the time is right now. Joseph didn't go to school. Joseph didn't get prepared for being in Pharaoh's court. Pharaoh said, you got the plan. God's with you. You're the man. Right now, hey, here's, here's the ring. Well, here's the ring. Um, here's the robe. Here's the chariot. You got transportation. Um, you've got my authority. Get the job done. And if we would only understand this principle, how much wiser would we steward God's resources? Decisions that you make in abundance will protect you in times of scarcity. Did you get that? Decisions that you make in abundance will help you in times of scarcity. You've been told... Save your money for a rainy day. And we've been told and we see all around us that emergencies, trouble is coming. What's good is that the story to this point is kind of negative. We've got a plan for the future. We've got to have a plan. We've got to do stuff that we're not naturally geared to do. But the story ends up on a great note. And we see this in our third and final point that wise preparation leads to preservation. Wise preparation leads to preservation. Joseph had concocted this incredible saving strategy. I want you to notice the saving strategy was not in the dream. He had seven fat cows, seven ugly cows. He had seven big ears of corn, seven lean ears of corn. There was nothing that God said specifically about saving. He just said, trouble's coming. Joseph was the one that concocted the plan. And so he has this strategy. Save 20% of your income in the years of plenty to sustain you in the seven years of uh, scarcity. 
Put aside a portion of your income for the future. Now, I'm not good at math. I'm sorry, sweetheart. I have to confess. These numbers don't add up. So they took 20% a year, 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 20% a year. And that provided 100% sustenance, 100% sustenance, 100% sustenance. Do you follow that? The the numbers don't make sense. They only put aside 20% of year one abundance, and that 20% provided 100% provision for year one of scarcity. I'm not good at math. I don't know how to explain that besides saying God blesses the wise. He blesses the prepared. And that stinks. If you're not somebody who's good at preparing, you have to admit that you may be removing yourself from some of God's blessing. The truth is that everything happened exactly as Joseph had foretold it. And in verses um, 53 through 57, we see... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not in the right place. It says that the uh, land of Egypt, beginning in verse 53... When the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end, then the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said. And there was famine in all the lands. But in the land of Egypt, there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. Joseph's wise advice avoided, at the very least, a national crisis. We know that it's more than that because it says that this trouble was everywhere. And because of Joseph's wisdom in saving, we see something really precious. That Joseph saves Egypt. He saves the world. But most importantly, he saves his family. His father, Abraham, told that his descendants will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth? Could it be in the short term that this is what God was referring to? Certainly we know it's the coming of our, His Son, our Savior. Abraham's seed is a blessing to all the earth here because Joseph was wise enough to prepare for the future. And certainly it's important that he saves his family because his family is the family from which our Savior would Come. I don't know if you've heard the story of the farmer who drowned. He, he knew that the floods were coming, and he was not, uh, not pleased that his hard work was being undone. And he worked hard, and he put the sandbags out, and he saw the waters come up over his crops and over his, his front step and up his porch and into the door of his first floor. So he goes up to the second floor, and he pl- prays to God. God, 
I need you to save me. And at the moment he opens his eyes, he sees a log floating by with a couple school kids. And say, Mr. Farmer, Mr. Farmer, hop on the log with us. And he says, no, boys, I prayed to God to save me, and God is going to save me. Just a few uh, hours later, the water's continuing to rise, and the police come by in a motorboat. And say, Mr. Farmer, this is your ride. You better get in now. And he says, boys, I don't need the help. I've prayed to God, and God's going to save me. So the boat goes on to find other people that weren't wise enough to leave. And the water's now into the second floor, and the farmer's climbing onto his roof when a helicopter comes by. And they yell down in the bullhorn, Mr. Farmer, we're going to lower down a rope. Hold on so that we can rescue you. And he says, go save someone else. God's coming to save me. At the end of the story, the farmer drowns. And he goes storming up to those pearly gates. He's mad. God, I've prayed, and I've been a pious man all my life. Did my devotions every morning, went to church, put my offering in the plate. Why didn't you save me? What's God say? Well, I sent you a log and a boat and a helicopter. Why didn't you take advantage of those? What if in your emergency, God says to you, I sent you help. But you used it on that new flat screen. You remember that big, massive SUV you bought for your family of three? Man, that Wave Runner, those were good times, weren't they? They don't help a whole lot right now, but man, good memories. Remember that vacation? That vacation home? What if God has indeed already provided everything that you need because He's faithful and you have squandered it On temporal pleasures. You see, when you don't use God's resources well, I believe you're trying to be one of the most devious liars on the face of the planet. Because when you use foolishly what God has already given you, you're trying to imply that God and His people don't provide in your time of need. And the truth is, you have a responsibility to live within the means that God has given you. The Bible's very clear. We are each supposed to carry our own load, but we're also supposed to help one another with their burdens, with their emergencies. Just don't make every situation in your life an emergency because you have squandered God's resources. The truth is that saving protects you and your family, and leaves enough left over for you to help others. You see, saving is not opposite of giving. Saving is not opposite of giving. You're not hoarding. You have an attitude and a motivation to, to care for your own and to be able to care for others. And I've been in this situation, and I bet you have too. Have you wanted to help someone but couldn't? Have you heard of a need? And say, man, that's a really neat thing that somebody, or that the church is doing for that. I wish I could contribute, but you can't. How incredible would it be to give without hesitation, not having to worry about your bills because you've lived wisely? What would God do with a church like that? I asked myself this question. Pharaoh promoted Joseph 
because he saw that Joseph was discerning and wise. How did Pharaoh come to the conclusion that Joseph was discerning and wise? Because he had a plan for the future. And I just have to wonder, when people look at us, do they see that kind of character in us? Are we, like the Egyptians, just living for the moment? Or are we allowing the gospel to turn us away from waste, to turn us away from debt, to help us to turn our back on a consumerism that will control us? Do we see circumstances from God's perspective? And are we seeking to use what he gives to the very best of our ability? Proverbs 13.22 says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. We desperately need to be a church that teaches God's way of handling money. It's been said, if you leave your kids money with no training, pretty soon they'll have no money. If you leave your kids no money with good training, pretty soon they'll have money. Wouldn't it be amazing if God put in your spirit the opportunity to be a blessing, to show that you're so content that you can save for the future and not just provide for your own, but be a blessing to others. Trouble is coming. That much is clear. But God in his sovereign providence gives us all the opportunity to head off disasters and protect our family by preparing to honor God with our finances. The grace of God has appeared, instructing us to love godliness and to think long-term and not be consumed with the here and now. This morning, the, the teaching edge for you might not be related to your finances. It might be related to your soul. You might be the person that has a deferred plan for making, making amends with God. The truth is, you, you don't know when that date is. Just like you don't know when a financial emergency is coming. So today as we have our invitation, if you need counsel, if you need encouragement, if you need prayer, I invite you to come. Pray with me as we stand to sing. Lord, help us to honor you as a faithful and giving God. Help us to model Uh, your liberal generosity by seeking to be wise stewards of what you've entrusted uh, to us. Help us not just to be wise with our finances for the sake of the future of our family, but help us to be wise with our very lives that we seek to glorify you and be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.